Good to see everyone this morning. Last week, I promised I would ask a question this week. Remember what that was? Like, no, no. <laughs> or maybe it was the week before. No, it was last week. Rooted reading. I encouraged you, if you haven't been doing a, a daily Bible plan, a Bible reading plan, to do that. And we put our, our bookmark in last week, rooted reading. And I was just wondering if somebody found something in their reading this week that hit them out of God's Word. What's something that struck you? Is anyone willing to share? Just that the chief priests were so angry about Christ raising Lazarus from the dead and that they were following Jesus because of that and they also plotted to kill Yeah. 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 Because he was proof. And, and from that point on, their whole attitude was much more aggressive, and they were looking for a way to kill him. She was, she, it, was, it struck her how the chief priests, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, normally something you would think of as a good thing, um, committed to killing him and Lazarus after that. Anyone else with something that, that hit you out of the reading? I'm playing catch-up, uh, but in Ezekiel, just how seriously God takes Israel's sin. Yeah. Because he feels kind of depressing. So much. They're going to destroy the anger and wrath. It's just like, wow, God really takes this Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's really hit me out of Ezekiel, too. And all the things Ezekiel had to do to show that. Poor guy. Um, we were talking as an elder board yesterday just to how many times God kept coming back to that they may know that I am the sovereign God. That they may know all the judgments, that they may know that I am God, because that is His desire. I encourage you to to be reading God's word, to to envelop yourself in God's word and enjoy it and make it a part of your routine, because that is one of the ways that we grow reading His letter to us. This morning we we move on in the Gospel of Mark, and last week, as as Pastor Andrew shared, we saw the disciples having a little bit of a discussion or argument about who the greatest is. And you can see that following what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration and, and down into the disciples, the other nine not being able to cast out the demon, that there was this tension. Well, huh, we got to see Jesus glowing. And, and, and the others are like, well, we couldn't even cast out a demon. And so they're walking along and, and there's this argument about who's the greatest. And then Jesus brings up a little child, says the last will be first and the first will be last. And then still not, not comprehending the concept of servanthood, John says, well, you know, Jesus, we did see this other guy casting out demons in your name, and, and we were a little annoyed because he was successful, and, and we weren't, so, so we think we should stop him. And Jesus again comes and teaches, no, he's doing it in my name. He's doing it as a disciple of mine, and we need to support that. And that brings us into the passage today where Jesus takes all of their, their looking at externals and looking at other people and jealousy and envy and just turns it on its head and says, okay, that's not the issue here. That's not the issue here. The issue is sin. The issue is sin. And let's talk. And when Jesus starts to address sin, it's a serious thing. I wanted to open with just a question what evidence do you see in our culture today that culture does not take sin seriously anymore? I, I knew not to ask, does culture take sin seriously? 
No, duh. I mean, I think we'd all agree with that. But so what evidence? What, what leads you to that conclusion? Television. What was that? Television. television. Watch any half hour of television. Yeah. That's right. We, I enjoy the Dodgers. And we have to be careful even of commercials during Dodger games with, with children. And so we TiVo everything and fast forward through everything. And because the commercials, even the commercials. What else? What evidence do you see that we do, just don't take sin seriously? The way that people dress, even in the church. Absolutely, it's a concern. I don't know if you saw a story yesterday of a, a rookie hockey player up north. Some of your ears just perked up. Um, and he's a devout Christian, young man. And um, he tweets a lot. And he tweeted a, a whole thing to girls and guys. And to the girls, he was talking about their dress. And was saying... Um, Girls, you know, keep everything hidden that's supposed to be hidden. It's making it difficult. And to the guys, he said, don't let that even be an excuse for you. Flee from immorality. And this article was just blasting him for that. Just blasting him for, for not understanding um, morality and not understanding the line that he, he could cross. And it was stunning to listen to their arguments for impurity. It wasn't just an argument against, against modesty. It was an argument for impurity, and that, that was troubling. What else? What other evidence do you see? In my heart, I feel this is right. You see that? People saying that all over? Yeah. Even in the church. Yeah. We're, ba- We're basing objective truth by what our heart feels. Or rather, what our heart wants. Um, absolutely. This morning, we could go on all morning with that question, and, and we could disparage culture, but we live in a sinful world that needs Christ. And in, in a dark world, a light has an opportunity to shine even brighter. And so we come to the text in Mark, and the, the title this morning that I put was Getting Serious About Sin. Because I wonder... If some of those cultural attitudes, if sometimes rather than being a light, we start to embrace some of those attitudes and we start to have a light view of sin. And and a view of sin that says, well, I'm forgiven. We're good. Yeah, I sin sometimes, but I'm forgiven. And the text today, Jesus begins to paint a different picture of what servant discipleship is. As he says, no, no, a servant disciple is devastated by sin, is serious about sin, takes it as something that must be avoided at all cost. So turn with me to Mark chapter 9. We enter into one of the sections in Mark, the section of Mark that has the largest block of Jesus' teaching. Mark typically is a storybook. Lots of action. Let's move from here to here to here. And in this case, we have a block of teaching. And so this is important to understand that where this falls in the book of Mark, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to be disciples. He's teaching them what servanthood looks like. He's teaching them what it means to follow him. And we saw that with with phrases like, take up your cross and follow me with teaching twice so far about the coming death and resurrection, and we'll see that a third time, with teaching that they are to value the insignificant, the little ones, the children. So we get to Mark chapter 9, verse 42. 
Let's read these eight verses, nine verses, and then break them apart into what God is saying here about sin. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. And if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Lots of different things in this passage. And some have said there's, there's a number of disjoint concepts. But really, this whole passage is about dealing with sin and that servants deal with sin seriously and are passionate about avoiding it. Servants deal with sin seriously and are passionate about avoiding it. We're going to break this into to three different sections of teaching. And the first section is just in verse 42 there. And Jesus is saying, be determined not to cause others to stumble. Be determined not to cause others to stumble. Make it your goal. Make it your passion. Not just some idle thing. Well, I'm not going to cause someone to stumble. Let's read verse 42 again. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And Jesus here now begins to turn the tables as they've been worried about the other guy casting out demons and worried about who's the greatest. He says, you know, you're worried about all these external things. No, no, the problem is internal. The problem is inside you. The problem is your heart. And so let's stop worrying about the other guy and let's start worrying about how self has affected our actions. And so he begins by talking about their indifference to others at times their lack of concern for others. And specifically, probably this rises out of their John's desire to make someone stop serving, someone stop ministering. And Jesus is like, wait, 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 wait. wait. That is directly using your influence to stop someone from serving God, to make someone disobey God. And that's a serious business couple things out of the verse. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Who are the little ones? And, and at, at first glance, I, I thought he was referring back to the child that, that may still be sitting there. And there may be using that as a symbolism, but the wording here is actually a different word than child. It literally is the ones who believe in me that are immature. The ones who believe in me that are, are lesser. And so, so as, as I studied, I realized, and, and, and as person after person wrote about it and what it means, he's really talking about those that are less mature in Christ. He's talking about disciples, thus the phrase, those who believe in me. He's talking about disciples, but maybe disciples that aren't as far along. Maybe disciples that, that are a little younger at times or, or younger in the faith. Maybe those that are a little more insignificant in where they're at in the church or status, as we talked about last week. 
what we think of as status. Maybe it's the one that he mentioned in verse 41 that their ministry is to give a cup of water. Well, that's not an upfront ministry. That's not a, a huge ministry. And, and Jesus is here saying, let's think about this. We, we've talked about the children. We've talked about how we're to care for the insignificant. Status doesn't matter. But now let's talk about how you affect other people. In our culture today, everything is about me. And John mentioned that. Well, is it right in my heart? Everything is about what I want to do, what I have a right to do. And Jesus is turning that on its ear and saying, no, 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 it's about how you affect other people. It's about considering how my actions may affect someone else. Am I causing someone to stumble? One author wrote, God shows more concern for the little one's fragile faith than for the great one's fragile egos, which cause them to lord it over or ignore others. Think about what the disciples were doing with this, this man that was casting out demons in Jesus' name, which, which Jesus validates. They are trying to stop the work of God without knowing it. And I don't think for a second Jesus would let that go. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... The word for cause to sin there and just breaking it apart is scandalizo, which literally means to put a rock in someone's path so they trip and fall over it. And that's where we get the word to stumble or to cause someone to sin. And it's, it's the idea that if we put anything in someone's way that causes them to sin, that causes them to question their faith, that causes them to believe a different faith, then that is sin on our account. That is sin on our part. Anything that would compromise the faith of another believer. And in this context, the disciples are struggling with a superior attitude, an elitist attitude, a condescending attitude. And Jesus says, no, that attitude causes people to stumble. Because you're treating people as insignificant. You're not receiving them in my name. That attitude causes people to stumble. I'm convicted even as a, a teacher. We read in James chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with, stricter, strict, or with, with greater strictness. Sorry. And, and the, the message there is, those that are mature have a responsibility for those, to those that are less mature. And my responsibility as a teacher is to watch what I'm teaching. And am I teaching what is right? Because if I teach error, then I am causing people to stray from a proper belief in God. And so Jesus' first focus here on taking sin seriously is wake up and see how your actions affect others. How do our example, how does our example affect others? What do people in the church see as we come to church? Do they see us engaged with every part of the body? Do they see us enjoying God's Word and enjoying His worship and digging into community life? Or by example, are we drawing people away from that? And that had to hit the disciples right between the eyes. 
Because now it's not just, am I committing sin? But what is my example doing for others? To really see how serious Jesus is making this, we need to see his picture of the alternative, the millstone. In the second half of that verse, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And I have a picture of a millstone. I don't know if you can see that. And there's a flat stone at the bottom there that is, is huge. And then the stone on the, on the, that's standing upright has a log through it or a beam through it. And that stone would be rolled around the flat stone with the grain on the flat stone. And that would crush the grain and turn it into meal or flour or something like that. And the imagery here, and, and I chose a large stone because the, the Greek word for millstone here is actually millstone of a donkey. And there were two kinds of millstone. There was the kinds that you could turn with your hand and, and do yourself. And then there was the kind that people couldn't turn that you had to hook up a beast of burden to the end of this log and they had to just cart that thing around with all their strength. That's the millstone Jesus is talking about. And he says it would be better if this huge millstone that you have no chance of lifting that will take you to the bottom in an instant, it would be better if that were hung around your neck and you were drowned at the bottom of the sea than for you to cause someone else to stumble through your actions. See, Jesus is, is deliberately here and in the next section using hyperbole or using the, the largeness of the consequence to illustrate the seriousness of the sin. Does that make sense? And, and this, would have, this would have had imagery to the disciples. They would have gotten this because in their history, the Romans, when one of the zealots had led an insurrection, this was the punishment that the Romans used on them. And they took giant millstones and took them out to the sea and tossed them in. And so this wasn't a foreign concept to them, and it would have been horrifying to them, especially in, in, in some of the pictures this morning are, are disturbing, or some of the images that, that Jesus talks about. But the image here is someone that is dragged to the bottom of the sea, and the millstone holding them on the bottom, and their body just sort of floating above it in the dark, in the sea, which represented a lot, a lot a loss of dignity. It represented darkness. It represented the underworld. And so this image would have been horrifying to them. And Jesus is saying, that's how seriously we need to take our effect on other people. This is not a light concept. And so we need to get into a place where realizing that we might cause someone else to stumble, that we might cause them to suffer in ministry, that we may cause them to believe something that isn't true, that by example we might lead them away from what a true disciple should be, that idea that we could do that should be horrific in our hearts. Horrific. And Jesus isn't saying that you live every step worried about what someone thinks, but that when that happens and that concept is so horrific to you that you want to stay as far away from it as you can. And Jesus squarely places the burden on the mature. George Fox, a Quaker itinerant preacher, 
in his younger years was seeking God and trying to figure out what he should do. And he tried looking at, at education and, and what he heard in the philosophy there wasn't satisfying. And he looked other places. And he finally went to ministers. And he was talking with one older minister at his home and asking him about ministry and if God would, would be calling him into that. And Fox accidentally stepped back on one of the minister's flowers. And the minister just went off on him. Flew into a rage. I don't know, some of you might be that way about your flowers. Um, and George Fox left. And praise God, he didn't leave the faith. And he sought other ministers, but he never talked to that man again. Because the example was destroyed. It was a destroyed in an instant, instance what takes years to build. What kind of example are we to others? What kind of example are we to our youth that are here? And I praise God for so many positive examples. But the challenge here is to keep that in mind. Every Sunday we come to church. What image am I, am I presenting? What heart am I presenting? What example am I presenting? Do people see a humility, a heart for God, an acceptance of others in the body? Or do people see pride, fighting for position, or holding on to serving? Do people see a love? Do people see a care, a passion for God? Or do people see us going through the motions and not taking those motions home? We come back to other people's growth according to Jesus, is more important than our egos. So be determined not to cause others to stumble. Then we get to the next section out of Mark chapter 9 there, verses 43 to 48. And in your notes I put the title, Perform Surgery on Areas of Your Life That Contribute to Sin. Perform surgery on areas of your life that contribute to sin. Let's read that section again. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. And Jesus is saying, perform surgery on areas of your life that contribute to sin. First section, first verse was about being indifferent to other people's needs. This is about being indifferent to sin and how we fall into sin. And he's saying extreme measures need to be taken. And let's just deal with a couple things up front. Jesus is not saying literally to go cut off hands, feet, and gouge out eyes. We're not going to have a pile of tools at the back of the sanctuary to put that into practice this morning. He's using, he's using something that's called hyperbole, where he's using the extreme to illustrate the depth and the impact of the issue. And so may we not water down what Jesus is saying by saying, well, he, he's not being literal here. So I guess we don't have to take it as seriously. No, that's not the point. He's not being literal, and that's a, a literary device to show you how important it is. 
Maiming yourself was, was prohibited under Judaism. That's not where he was going. Some in church history have gone there. Won't get into those stories. But, but Jesus is using this to show the importance, and we'll, we'll get to that. The other thing that I just want to mention right up front, you might notice something in your Bible about this section. Something missing. Do you notice anything? Verses 44 and 46. And at times you'll see verses missing, and, and that's, that's a great chance to read your notes and read, read your study Bible if you have one to say, okay, what's going on here? And verses 44 and 46 actually in some manuscripts are there, in older manuscripts. In the earliest, most reliable manuscripts, they're not there, and so our current translations don't put those in. And if you're wondering, well, what were they? They were literally verse 48 copied. And so 44 and 46 were exact copies of 48, because if you read 43, 45, and 47, there's a a parallelism, isn't there? If this causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life without one of something or without two of something than to be sent to hell. And so the, some scribes probably copied it in in parallel, but in, the, in the, the most reliable manuscripts we don't have it, and so your translations just leave those verses out now. It's not that someone forgot how to count or that my son was doing the numbering. Um, there, there's a reason for that. So that just deals with a couple of things right up front. But let's get back to Jesus' point, because I, I don't want to lose how serious Jesus is saying we need to take sin. This is vital. And, and he's moving from, from what we cause others to do to now what we allow in our own hearts and what we allow to ensnare us. And we see just a number of points there that I think I lettered on your notes. Um, the first is Jesus is inclusive of all areas of life that lead to sin. His warning is inclusive of all areas of life that lead to sin. Your hand, whatever is done, whatever you use a hand for. Your feet, wherever you go. You might go to a place that would lead you into sin. Your hand, you might do something or use your hand to commit a sin. Your eyes, dealing with what you see, what you desire, what you lust after. And that's a window into the heart. And so Jesus is intentionally using these three words, not, not to say it's only these three things, but to say, look at your whole life. Is there anything in your life that is contributing to your sin? Is there anything that, that is a tool that you use that becomes a tool to sin or, or leads you to sin? Is there any place you go that, that you just find yourself struggling in? Is there things that you see? that end up leading to sin. Desires, envy, lust. That's a challenge. And so he uses these three things, and it was a a common, again, a common way of writing in Palestinian custom. You often use the implement to describe the sin rather than the sin itself. And that was a, a little bit of a broader term, a more inclusive way of looking at the sin. And so Jesus is using exactly what they would understand to say, I'm talking about anything in your life that leads to sin, including your heart, including what you see, including what you desire. Second point, letter B there, our actions on earth have eternal ramifications. Our actions on earth have eternal ramifications. 
And again, I, I can't say adequately enough how Jesus is using his words to show the, the depth of the importance of dealing with sin. And so he compares in each of those verses. If you look at 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you, and so there's a comparison there. It is better for you to enter life crippled with two hands than to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. In verse 43, he adds to the unquenchable fire. He's, he's, we'll get to that in a moment, but he's using a description for the Gentiles that are reading this. The Jews would have understood the word for hell. The Gentiles would have been, well, I don't really know that word. And so he describes it. But the comparison is life, not to death, life to hell. Because both have eternal ramifications. The soul doesn't die in either case. It's either eternal torment or it's life with Christ. And he's using this to refer to heaven and eternity with Christ and the joy of being in God's presence for all eternity as opposed to being away from God's presence and in torment for all eternity. And our actions here on earth have those ramifications. The word for hell used in, in the first, in 43 and 45, in 47 rather, the word for hell is Gehenna, which comes from the Hebrew Gehenom. And it referred to the Hinnom Valley that was near Jerusalem. And there's all kinds of debate right now. It's sort of fun to see because but you've probably heard the story of the Hinnom Valley, that it's where the rubbish heap was. They would take the garbage out and they would burn it. And it would just be always burning with, with smoke and, and putrid smell. But there's a lot of research right now that that may not actually be a true story. And, and we don't know because that arose in about the 13th century. Uh, um, a rabbi said, I think this is what it, it was. And we have nothing earlier that shows that. But what we do know in God's Word, and this is where it's important to, to maybe go away with what, from what we've heard and go back to God's Word and say, what does God's Word say? In the Old Testament, the Hinnom Valley was used when the children of Israel walked away from God. They would commit child, or they would perform child sacrifices there. And they would take humans out and burn them to the god Moloch. See, I don't think we need to consider it as a garbage dump. That's enough to know how horrific hell is. And that burning would be a putrid smell. We do know that, that King Josiah, in trying to clean things up, somehow defiled this area. And that's where it gives rise to maybe it became a garbage dump to where they could no longer commit um, ritualistic sacrifices there. But whatever it was, by the time Jesus came along, the Jews understood Gehenna as the place of eternal punishment and torment. Now some will say, well, after we're, we're done here on earth, your soul just goes away. You either go to God or, or you just disappear into nothingness. But Jesus says, no, your soul, if you are not a child of God, goes to Gehenna, goes to hell, where there's eternal torment. Another book written recently said, well, you know, it's not eternal ramifications. We can change our mind later, which is completely ridiculous with God's Word. Our decisions now affect our eternity. And Jesus isn't saying here that, oh, if you sin once, you're in hell. There's no hope. 
he is, he is bringing a comparison between disciples and those that are not disciples. And disciples love life. And we know from 1 John that a child of God will not continue in sin. He will not keep on sinning. Yes, sin is still a struggle, but he will not continue to sin. And that's the comparison to one who is allowing sin to rule in his life. And men and women this morning, if sin is something that rules in our lives, then we need to go back and ask the question, am I a child of God? Am I a child of God? Because sitting in church for 20 years doesn't do it. Only belief in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and paid the penalty for those sins, that is the only saving grace. And the whole Bible speaks to that. And Jesus is speaking to that here when he talks about how serious sin is and that it has eternal effects. But he talks about how to deal with it. Let her see there, deal with sin as seriously as amputation. Deal with sin as seriously as amputation. And he's using this to show the relative value of life in eternity with anything here on earth. Really, is there anything here on earth that compares to eternity with God? Is there any sacrifice we could make? There's nothing. And so if a sacrifice has to be made to walk with God and to deal with sin, do it. And Jesus here takes, takes one step back and doesn't just say, okay, stop lusting or, or stop committing murder or stop stealing. And we have other verses that talk about that. He goes back further and says, stop doing the things that lead to those things. If we want to stop sinning, oftentimes our best bet is to stop putting ourselves into temptation. The amazing thing is, is if we don't place ourselves in places where we're tempted, chances are we won't be tempted as much. Now, that doesn't mean we go cloister ourselves off and because there's temptations of the heart and there's other temptations. But Jesus is coming back to, let's get to the root of the problem. It's not about externals. It's about your heart. The story is told of a man who was trying to quit drinking, just couldn't conquer that, and, and just came home drunk still every night. And his pastor said, well, what's going on? He goes, I don't know. I walk home and I pass the bar and... The temptation is too great, and I go in, and you know, you've heard the story. What does the pastor say? Walk home a different way. Cut out anything in your life that is leading you to sin. Anything. And this is where we have to begin to ask the question Am I serious about cutting out sin? Do I take sin seriously enough to change what I'm comfortable with, to change my life so that I don't offend a righteous and holy God? So I don't shame my Heavenly Father? You know, if if, if you're struggling with things that you watch on TV, maybe it's time to cut the TV cord. If you're struggling with, with things that you're seeing on your computer, maybe it's time to drop the Internet. You're like, boy, that, well, I use the internet for a lot of things. That's radical. So sin. And we need to get serious about it. What will it take 
for us to deal with sin and realize how horrifying our sin is to God. Maybe we struggle with gossip and we need to stop talking with some people. Maybe we struggle with truth and we need someone that's willing to call us in front of people when we don't tell the truth. How seriously will we take sin? There's a story a few years back, a guy, and you you probably heard the story, but there's a, a recent update to the story. But a guy was out hiking alone in the Utah desert and um, didn't tell anyone where he was going. And he was out and he ended up slipping and a rock fell and pinned his arm in in the cavern back in 2003. And he was there for 127 hours. Ran out of food, ran out of water, completely secluded. And not to get too gory, but I think it illustrates what Jesus is saying here. He ended up taking a knife and having to cut off his arm that was trapped to get out because he realized his life was more important than his arm. Three weeks ago, a guy was so inspired by the story that he wanted to retrace his steps. And he didn't tell anyone. (laughs) You know where this is going. He slipped and fell down a a ravine and ended up um, dislocating his shoulder and breaking his ankle, I believe. Yeah. Ended up having to crawl back to his car five miles away. He was only out there for 96 hours, so it was just a completely different story. (laughs) He didn't learn anything. (laughs) But that story illustrates how serious life is. Not life on earth, but life with God. Will I see the horror of sin? Will I fear God's judgment? Or will I live in peaceful compromise with the world? Verse 48 ends that section where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And Jesus is quoting Isaiah 66, 24 here. I love it when Jesus quotes Scripture. He knew God's Word. He knew the Old Testament. In Isaiah 66, 24, it's near the end of the book and it's near an, it's at the end of a section where Isaiah is contrasting the disobedience and rebellion of Israel and the judgment that that would bring and the, the blessings that would come on those that would return to God. And at the end of the section, he comes back to this Isaiah passage and says, those that are blessed will go out and they will see those in torment that were disobedient, that were rebellious, and it will be a lesson to them. And so the terminology there is a worm that would eat a corpse, that would eat something that's decaying, and a fire that would eventually burn it. And they understood this as a reference to hell, to everlasting torment. And it was to be a warning to have a heart that was contrite, a heart that was repentant and hated sin as opposed to a proud heart. Do we want to sin less? That's the first question. Do we even want to sin less? then we need to start seeing the horror of it compared to the holiness and righteousness of God that demands a response.
letter D. And this is, this is more just applying theology to, to this principle. When a believer's sin sins, believer's sin mocks the cross and our Father. A believer's sin mocks the cross and our Father. See, Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. He adopted us as sons of God and daughters of God. He brought us into His family. He bore our sins on the cross. It wasn't just a a little fun thing that was an example to us. He literally took our sins on the cross. And when we continue to sin, we are adding to the sins that He has placed on Him on the cross. Now, now, Now imagine if some strange little kid goes and steals something. That affects you maybe a little bit. Imagine if it's your son or daughter that goes and steals something. Affects you a little bit more? See, when we are are sons and daughters of the king, I would argue that our sin is even more horrific than before we were sons and daughters of the king. Because we are deliberately mocking the cross and mocking the payment that Christ made for our sins. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That was His goal. That's why He took the pain. And when we don't die to sin and when we don't live to righteousness, we are denying His work on the cross. By His wounds, the passage goes on, you have been healed. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became a curse in our place. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. Getting serious about sin is realizing the depth of the payment for our sin. The depth of grace. And the hurt that happens when we continue to sin to our Lord and Savior. Perform surgery on areas of your life that contribute to sin. Think for a moment, what needs to be cut out? Do I struggle with anger? Do I struggle with lying? Do I struggle with lust? What needs to be cut out? Finally, verses 49 and 50. Allow God to refine you through trials into pleasing sacrifices. Allow God to refine you through trials into pleasing sacrifices. First section is about how our actions affect others and being horrified when we cause people to stumble. Second section is cutting out anything in our own lives that could lead to sin. And the third section now is saying, okay, God, do your work. Use whatever it takes to refine me into a useful tool. Verse 49, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. 
And, and Jesus is using some of the, the words that he used earlier, and he's using catchwords where fire leads to fire here and salt leads to salt here. They don't always mean the same thing. And so this is, for, for, many, for many commentators, a very confusing passage, and for, for all of us. Okay, what's he saying there? So let's just look quickly. Verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. And letter A there is, trials refine us to be a sweet aroma pleasing to God. You're probably saying, Pastor Ron, I don't see where you're getting that. Trials refine us to be a sweet aroma pleasing to God. And this is where it helps to understand the the Jewish culture. In Leviticus 2.13, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. In fact, one of the, the scribes that was copying this section in later manuscripts put a little note by there that says sacrifices will always be sacrificed with salt. And so what Jesus is referring here is is their sacrificial system. The sacrifices, especially the ones that showed a covenant between them and God, they would add salt to. And they would rub salt into the meat or or the grain offering or whatever it was to before they offered it. And that salt was an added thing that created a, a seasoning, an aroma that was more pleasing to God. And it also, salt had the function of purification and, and preserving. And so they'd rub it into the sacrifice and that would be preserved. And then it would be this sweet aroma to God. And so Jesus is saying here, when he says everyone will be, be salted with fire, He's, he's referring back to the sacrificial system and the burning of these offerings with the salt as seasoning. And he's literally turning, remember who he's talking to, he's talking to his disciples, and he's saying, you are to be my sacrifice. But salt will be added. And just as salt was added to the sacrifices to make it more pleasing to God, fire or trials are what you'll be salted with to purify you so the sacrifice of your living body will be more pleasing to God. And we think of verses like Romans 12.1, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And so literally, Jesus here is saying that trials refine us to be a sweet aroma pleasing to God. He's looking for charred Christians. who are willing to say, God, do whatever it takes to get rid of the impurities in my life. And that usually hurts. And that usually comes through fire. And if we are really serious about sin, and if we're really serious about becoming servant disciples that are pure and useful to God, then we've got to be willing to go through the fire. And we've got to see the fire in a whole new way instead of saying, oh no, what is God doing to me? It's like, oh wow, what is God doing to me? He's refining me. He's burning away the impurities. He's creating a disciple. So be a charred Christian. One that is willing to rejoice in trials as trials take away our love for the world. They strip away our superficial belief. They strengthen our faith. They become a witness and a testimony. Then in verse 50, salt is good, 
But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. One of their proverbs was, the world cannot survive without salt. They didn't have refrigeration. That is how food was preserved and purified and flavored. And my letter B there is, trials keep us flavorful. I don't know if you've thought of yourself as flavorful. But they refine us to be effective. See, once salt isn't flavorful, once it has impurities, it's no good anymore. Some of you that, that understand the, the chemical compounds are like, well, well, pure salt, sodium chloride, can never go bad. But understand, again, the culture helps us understand how they got their salt was going to the Dead Sea and they would, they would take the salt from the edges of the sea and they would break that down. But they didn't have the tools to refine it into a pure sodium chloride or a pure salt, and so it often had all these impurities in it. It had other substances in it. And when it had enough of these other substances, it it would lose its flavor. It would become sort of stale and and really quite gross. And it would lose its effectiveness. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, the the trials, the, the refining, that sin is those impurities that prevent you from being effective disciples. They prevent the flavor from coming through. And so the fire refines us to make us effective. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to deal with sin in our lives so that we are useful tools for the maker of the universe? It absolutely is worth it. And finally, to end, as we commit to being servant disciples or salt, we will see better relationship, we will see better relationships in the body. Verse 50, the second half, have salt in yourselves or literally among yourselves and be at peace with one another. When God refines us, when we deal with sin, that we commit in our example to others, that we commit in ourselves, when God strips away those impurities, the result is sweet, sweet harmony in the body. Our challenge this morning is to deal with sin in an extreme way. Do whatever it takes to deal with what is an affront to God's holiness. And the disciples, they're, they're, they're arguing about who's more important. They're arguing about trying to stop someone from ministering. Their, their neglect of children, those were all sins that were in their heart that God wanted to destroy so they would be useful disciples. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving all that we might live, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. May we as your children do just that. In Jesus' name, amen.